The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For the past half century, the Wolfson History Prize has celebrated history books that combine rigorous research with popular appeal. The shortlist for 2021 was recently announced. And for this episode, we spoke to three of the six authors whose books are in contention for this year's prize. On our panel were Helen McCarthy, author of Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, Sudhir Hazari Singh, author of Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture, and Rebecca Clifford, author of Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust. In conversation with BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar, they discussed the themes of their books, and the secrets to writing exceptional popular history. And just to note, Helen, Sudhir and Rebecca have all previously appeared on our podcast to discuss each of their books in much more depth. You can find those episodes by searching their names in our podcast archive or on historyextra.com. So I wonder if I could just ask you guys, first of all, and maybe take it in turns here, whether you could briefly just sum up for our listeners and potentially those who haven't yet heard the episodes we've done on all of your books, just to very briefly sum up the themes of your books. And perhaps we could start with you as you're on my screen at the moment, Helen. Sure. So my book, Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, is a social and cultural history uh, that covers uh, the history of Britain since the mid-19th century to more or less the present day, although I should say it was written pre-COVID. Uh, and what it tries to do really is, is is two things. So it tries to reconstruct the everyday lives of mothers who worked for pay in different occupations, different regions, across social classes, across, across race and ethnicity. Um, I try to look at their childcare arrangements, their home lives, as well as the discrimination and prejudice that they met in the workplace. And then the other thing that I try to do is explore how working motherhood was really represented, debated, understood uh, in the wider culture. So through things like policy making in the popular media, um, through the kind of sociological uh, books that begin to be written about working mothers in the 1950s and 1960s. And I overall, my overarching argument is that what we see is a shift from this idea that working motherhood is a social evil, a social problem, to, to working motherhood as something which is actually fairly ordinary. Women don't become equal, but the working mother at least becomes a, a rather unremarkable and ordinary figure in British society. Fantastic. And Sudhir, I wonder if you could just briefly talk us through your book. Thanks. Yes, with pleasure. So my book is a biography of someone called Toussaint Louverture, who was um, one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution, um, which is this um, 
explosive event in the late 18th, early 19th century um, in the French Caribbean colony uh, of Saint-Domingue, as it was then known. And basically, it is uh, a revolt of the enslaved people of Saint-Domingue, which begins in 1791, a couple of years after the start of the French Revolution. And Toussaint Louverture, himself a former uh, slave, becomes the leader of this revolution. And my book really traces the story of how um, he becomes both uh, a military um, commander and basically fights against, um, at various points, the French, the British, and the Spanish, and basically liberates um, the territory from foreign occupation. And also how, in the process of doing this, he tries to build um, what we would call today a multiracial republic in, in the colony. And uh, the book tells the story all the way through until 1802, when he's captured by the French and um, taken into exile where he dies. But his struggle is continued by his lieutenants. And uh, a couple of years later, the Haitians managed to expel the French and the, the modern nation of Haiti is then born. Thank you. And finally, Rebecca, I wonder if you could just briefly talk us through your book. Thank you. My book, Survivors, Children's Lives After the Holocaust, is really driven by a question. And the question is, how do you tell the story of who you are if you don't know where you come from? And that's, um, it was a question I've been thinking about a lot because I've worked for all my career with oral history. So I think a lot about how people tell the story of who they are. Cause I've done so many, you know, hundreds of interviews with people and, um, thinking about, uh, just actually in, in many ways, what a privilege it is to be able to explain who you are by starting with, you know, here's where I came from. Here's the town where I was born and these are my parents. And so I started to think about, um, how how you could explore what would happen if uh, if you looked at a group who couldn't answer that very very basic question which i think is a fundamental question to our identity so the book looks at 100 children very young children who survived the holocaust in continental europe um i chose very young children because they were all, you know, they had embodied the embodied experience of surviving the Holocaust. They were all there. They were on the ground, as it were. But because they were very young, they often had no memories of the experience or very fragmentary memories, this patchwork of their early lives. And the difference between them and most of us is that we all have fragmentary memories of our childhoods. But we have a social world of, of memory that, you know, this is a social world that helps us understand those. So usually we ask our parents, what is this thing that I remember? And they're able to tell us, but this group of 100 children, they didn't have that, that whole social world of memory that helps us all put that early part of our lives together was gone. So this book really explores how they approach that question, you know, who am I? Who am I? At all the different points in their lives through the seven decades of the, of the post-war period. And it walks us, the readers, through those, the changes of historical context and changes in the life cycle. Um, but although this is obviously a very, you know, very special group, I really hoped in writing the book that anybody could pick it up and see something of their own experiences of trying to piece together their early lives uh, reflected in the pages. So that was my ultimate goal. And then that actually brings us on to, I suppose, one of the, the points I'd like to bring up for this interview is you talk about anybody being able to pick it up. And that's what the Wolves and History Prize celebrates is books that, that, as you say, anybody can pick up. So what do you guys think are the secrets to writing successful history for the popular reader, for the general reader? I've thought so much about this topic over the course of writing Survivors, which took six years, uh, as is probably pretty typical for the writing of a, of a history book. Um, I, at the beginning, I thought of myself as a historian. And by the end, I thought of myself as a writer. And that was one of the happiest and most rewarding changes of my life. But to walk that journey was difficult. I had to abandon so many things that we learn in our discipline. Because, of course, when you do, um, starting with your BA and your MA and then your PhD, you learn a certain style of writing and it becomes very deeply ingrained. In fact, to succeed, you have to learn that, you know, you have to learn to write flawlessly in that style. And I found that um, writing survivors, I had to abandon a lot of that stuff that I had learned. And that was quite a, you know, it was it was hard work to um, 
to abandon that. Uh, but it was so rewarding. And I think to myself now, I'm never going back to that old way of writing. Why would I? It's so, there's such an enormous um, power in thinking of your book as having a kind of agency. It goes out into the world and it does something. And the way that I used to write or that I was trained to write, it would go out and it would only reach maybe a few hundred people. I'd rather reach loads of people who might, you know, benefit in some way, who might get something out of it, who might feed it back to me, and then I can take it forwards in different ways. Uh, wonderful, a transformative experience. Mm. I would agree with that, that there are things that you have to unlearn because our, our scholarly training teaches us to be very explicit about our methods, about our sources, to explain, describe, and justify them in great detail, and also to locate our research in the broader scholarship. So to explain to our academic readers how our research moves the field forward. Now, the general reader on the whole is not interested in that. I mean, unless there's some sort of very kind of big revisionist claim that, that your book is making, uh, on the whole, you have to dispense with that. Or rather, you have to find ways of of having a, a kind of what we would call historiographical conversation, a conversation about the existing scholarship through your footnotes, um, or in, in or sort of to do it in, in, a, in a way that doesn't stop the the narrative uh, moving forward. And I think with a book like Double Lives, you know, I knew I had this big subject, women, family, and work, and that I wanted to write over quite a long period of time. So it covers about 150 years, um, and I knew that I was dealing with a subject that is very, very complicated. So I'm trying to really describe and explain quite significant and complicated processes of social change. Uh, and in order to do that, I had to kind of set lots of hairs running. So there are lots of drivers shifting, you know, there are lots of things going on. There's a story about demographics. There's a story about um, economic structures. Uh, there's a story about politics. Um, but there's also at the centre of it, the lives of working mothers themselves. And I think I made a, a decision quite early on that that was really going to be the, the heart of the book. The heart of the book was going to be about um, mothers' own experiences, their subjective feelings about paid work, their shifting aspirations and desires, which, of course, is not a sort of independent variable that doesn't explain why we see this change that I'm describing in the book. But I wanted to centre it and bring those sort of wider contextual um, factors into the frame through keeping the stories of, of women at the heart. I hope that I pulled it off, but it is, as, as Rebecca said, it's sort of difficult to kind of leave your, your scholarly training behind. Um, but it is very rewarding and very liberating in some ways to be able to, to free yourself. And what about you, Sudhir? Well, I had maybe a, a little advantage in the sense that I'm not a professional historian by trade, so I didn't have to unlearn um, too many things there. Although, you know, in po politics, which is my discipline, there's also various um, uh, uh, things that um, can get quite narrow. Um, and I think one one fundamental point, which um, Helen just made as well, is that when you have a very complicated story, one of the things you need to do for yourself is to is to simplify it. Um, and, and, and before being able to simplify it, you have to be able to tell it to yourself. And, uh, and that process is actually a very important one, um, clarifying things. And, and once you've clarified them, you're then in a kind of very good position to be able to, to tell the story in a clear way. And my story is a very, very complicated one, although it, the, the core of it only stretches over about uh, 12 years. Um, it's a phenomenally complicated period where you have a lot of interactions among a lot of different groups of people. And so needing to to be able to simplify it and tell it to myself was was important. And then there was the unifying factor, which in my case was the fact that it, this is a biography. So always I was able to um, bring things back. And indeed, this is one of the central ambitions of the book, always to be able to, to bring things back to Toussaint uh, Louverture himself. And in a sense, to let him speak um, uh, bring back his voice. So that was uh, hopefully one of the sort of unifying features of the book, that it's constantly bringing the narrative back to, to the principal figure. And that, I think, helps uh, make the book um, a little bit more accessible. 
I just want to follow from what Sidir said, because I think one of the things I learned in writing Survivors is that good history is, is propelled forward by good stories. And in some ways, we feel uncomfortable as academics forefronting the stories and then putting the theory and the methodology and kind of putting that to the margins or wearing it lightly, I suppose. Um, but I was really, I have to give a shout out to my wonderful editor at Yale, Julian Luce, because without him, I don't think I, I would have been brave enough to do that in some ways. He always said, you know, you've lost sight of the story here bring it back to the voices of the survivors themselves. Make sure they're always at the front. And that was, it was actually so lovely to sort of be cut free to do that in a way and to really say, okay, it's actually about their stories and the, you know, the concepts and the theoretical stuff. It's there, but it's very lightly on the edges rather than front and center. Um, it's a lovely way to write to foreground stories. I mean, one of the great benefits of writing history is it is, it is story-driven. And I don't actually think that there's any tension or conflict between narrative and analysis, uh, particularly, I mean, for historians, because we explain change and continuity over time. You know, that's our kind of core business. And so narrative serves that analytical aim. And really, I mean, I took decision very early on that Double Lives was going to have a broad chronological structure. And I mean, there's lots of very innovative history writing that doesn't do that, that that, that will adopt a thematic or will structure or will play around with temporality. But I knew that, you know, I was trying to, to describe and explain a change over a long period of time. And narrative was going to be absolutely key to doing that effectively. But it also meant that I could tell stories. I could tell a really kind of good story um, about transformation, uh, but also about the things that don't change. Um, and being able to do that over 150 years is great because, you know, my, you know, when I did my PhD, I was just looking at a, at a 20 year period, which meant that, you know, the opportunities for doing that were, were limited. So it was also really kind of liberating to take a long period of time and to really kind of get to grips with what changes and to be able to see what doesn't change. And do you see any pitfalls in writing popular history at all, any of you? Yeah, I think, I think sort of just to pick up on what I said before, you know, not to get too bogged down in trying to explain, here's what the scholarly landscape looks like and here's the original contribution that I'm making with my research. You know, most readers are not going to be particularly interested in that. And also to avoid jargon to avoid, you know, needlessly obtruse uh, academic language. And, but I mean, on the whole, I think that academics should avoid that, whoever they're writing for, actually. I don't think it's an um, intrinsic quality of academic writing that it needs to be written in very kind of dense conceptual language. So I think good history writing actually is good history writing, whoever the audience is. But those, those are some of the things that I would, I would warn against. And Rebecca? I, it's a really interesting question, Rob, because I don't think of myself as having written a popular history. I think of survivors as an academic history, but written so that a lot of people can pick it up and read it. I don't know. I always feel funny saying with pleasure because it's such a hard topic. And I've received so many emails from people around the world saying how difficult they found it to read it. But, but you know, with that, they, they can read it without kind of hitting constant obstacles of the sorts of things that Helen's talking about, right? Jargonistic language. So I think of it as actually, I think it is a highly and rigorously academic book. It took me six years to research and write it, but it's uh, presented in a way that just hopefully opens up that academic world. I do think though that, um, look, I, I'll be honest, I worried about something quite a lot when I was writing Survivors. And um, it, it might be not so meaningful for many members of the audience, but academics who are, you know, employed by universities, we have to jump through this hoop set by this research excellence framework, the kind of a process we go through every once in a while. To return a book to that exercise, it has to meet certain academic standards. Actually, one of the things I worried about was what if I can't, what if I can't put it through that process? But I was helped by other historians who have kind of taken this, you know, leap into writing for a different sort of audience who promised me, no, it's fine. You can, you can write a rigorously academic book that anybody can read. 
that can be done. And uh, it's wonderful to look um, at that example. I was greatly helped by my doctoral supervisor, actually, Robert Gilday, who's written many books like that. And he just said to me, it's fine. They, they all, they all, you know, they jump through the academic hoops and they still reach the wider audience. You can do it. I, I would um, endorse that. I certainly felt that I was writing, uh, you know, an original scholarly book, but one which had a, a broader audience in mind. I was quite I thought it was quite interesting, though, that that some of the reviews that the book received, uh, I mean, on the whole, it was really nicely reviewed, which was very gratifying. But there were a few reviews which sort of described it as, you know, as, as kind of careful and balanced, as though somehow a book on working motherhood, there's an expectation that it was going to be very controversial or very polemical. And anyway, there was one reviewer in particular, you know, who was a bit disappointed that the book wasn't a bit more angry, actually, in its tone, in its register. So I thought that was quite interesting because I always knew that I wasn't going to write an angry book or a polemical book. And in a way, you know, one of the arguments, the arguments that I'm making in the book about how working motherhood becomes kind of socially acceptable or how it becomes kind of ordinary or sort of unremarkable actually would not have been served by... Um, a, a very kind of angry or polemical tone, but it was it was interested me that the subject matter pe- clearly in some people's minds suggested a, a different kind of authorial voice. And what about you, Sudhir? What do you think about the pitfalls of writing popular history, if there are any? Well, I think one one potential danger is that um, you're you're a bit too close to the present, and and sometimes things that we think in the moment are really important and and really matter in the wider scheme of things turn out to be just passing fads. And I hope my book hasn't fallen into that trap. My excuse is that when I started writing this biography, nobody was talking about Black Lives Matter or racial equality in the way that fortunately people are now. So, So my book sort of became something that that was in line with the spirit of the times. But when I started it in 2015, um, it wasn't. But, you know, what, what one can um, sometimes uh, uh, be on the wrong end of that, uh, that present moment. Um, but I think, you know, what someone asked me recently, um, you know, wh- whether there were any um, of the previous winners um, of the Wolfson Prize that I would recommend. Um, and actually, the two that I, I, I did for that occasion were w- one of the first winners, Keith Thomas's book uh, on religion and the decline of magic, and Richard Cobb's book on death in Paris. And both of those books are, you know, in a sense, they can be read by anybody, and neither Keith nor nor Richard wrote them with a particular audience in mind. They wrote them because they felt they had something to say, and those two books turned out to be wonderful. And anyone coming at coming at them can read them and and get something out of them. Uh, specialists will see certain things that obviously members of the general public won't. But, you know, you pick up Richard Cobb's book uh, and it's just full of fascinating details about people's lives in the in late 18th century Paris. And so I think that's the fundamental point, that as long as you have something interesting, useful and original to say, and you say it well and clearly, I think that's the winning formula. And Sudhir, and, and in fact, all of you, what, what does it mean for you to be shortlisted for this prize? Well, for me, it's it's an Im- enormous uh, honour. Uh, as I said, um, uh, I don't. Uh, although I've I've worked in in history and with history a lot, I'm I'm kind of professionally trained as a, as a politics person. So I feel there's something especially gratifying in being in being recognised by by what is without doubt the sort of premier um, uh, uh, prize when it comes to to history writing. Uh, and I'm also very gratified that one of the big criteria for this is is readability, as as we've just been talking about. So it's not just about having having done a lot of research in the archives, which I happen to have done for this book, but also it's a it, it, it's a very nice recognition of the effort that um, I put in to make this um, readable and accessible. So in both of those respects, it's uh, it's extremely gratifying. Yeah, it's a wonderful 
a kind of affirmation, I guess, of, of one's intellectual endeavours and, and, and projects in a sense that the book, the book really works and the book has kind of hit its target, which for me was always, as I say, to kind of write this, this sort of big history of women's work that could be authoritative, that could kind of speak to, um, to a general audience. But also it's just wonderful to see a book about motherhood on the Wolfson shortlist. I mean, the Wolfson Prize has recognised women's history in the past. So Amanda Vickery's The Gentleman's Daughter is a previous winner. That's another kind of real kind of classic book that stands the test of time. But it's but it's I think it's it's great to see motherhood as a subject for serious history and recognised as serious history and recognised as a subject that actually is not marginal, but is central to our understanding of past societies and of social and, and, and economic change. So for all of those reasons, it's, it's well, it's a huge honour, but it's, it's also a real affirmation, I guess, of, of, of what I was trying to do. I think I can follow on from that and say, well, follow on from um, what both Helen and Sidir said. It's really the hugest honour of my career to be shortlisted for this prize. And following on from what Helen said, Survivors is a book that primarily uses oral history. And, you know, it's a sub- subjective story. This is always I mean, subjectivity and memory are, are at the core of what oral history is. And it's very affirming to see that recognized because actually in the academy, it's taken an awfully long time to have oral history recognized as a real way to do history. Uh, So it's wonderfully, wonderfully affirming. And also going back to something Sadir said, I'm going to guess that Sadir and Helen feel the same way. And actually all all of us on the shortlist, you take a bit of a risk, a bit of a gamble in writing differently. In, in challenging yourself to write in a different sort of way. And so it's so wonderful to see that Gamble paid off, right? that it was, um, you know, in, in retraining yourself to write, um, you know, to use uh, voices differently in your work and also to try to reach a different sort of audience that, uh, that, that worked, I suppose. And for me, I had a sense of it being kind of a high risk, high reward project from the beginning. And it involved a lot, as I've already said, a lot of kind of thinking about how to write in a different way. So how good to know that, you know, it's worked. Can I jump in on the gamble side just to uh, further echo um, what Rebecca just said? When I started off doing this, I remember someone telling me, you know, who's going to be interested in a French colony um, and in a, a, a rebel leader who is obviously a very honourable and brave man, but literally hardly anyone is, will have heard of him in, in Britain. You know, you, this might be a book that you, you could write in, about in France, and, and even the French don't know the story as well as they should. Um, but this isn't really, I mean, a few people said to me, this, is, this isn't really a story for um, the great British public. So um, I kind of gulped and, and, and jumped anyway. <laughs> Actually, I can add something just that, that well, both, both Sudhir and Helen have made me think of. So Helen talked about the joy of seeing women's history kind of given this recognition. And I think I almost had the opposite impulse I was I was worried throughout writing Survivors that people might look at it and see, oh no, not another book about the Holocaust. There are a lot of books about the Holocaust. We now know when we train doctoral students, we can never ask any doctoral student to read them all. It would be quite impossible. So this is a field where there's uh, a lot has been said. And finding something new to say is, is, is tricky. But that's why at the beginning, I think I I probably told you it is a book about child survivors of the Holocaust, but that's not how I see it quite. And that's not quite how I presented it. I see it as a book about remembering your childhood. And this is just a group that are very extreme edge of a common experience. And, uh, and hopefully that's, that's been successful and made it not just another book about the Holocaust, but about something quite different. And beyond the acclamation you've had from this Wolfson History Prize, what kind of response have you had from general readers out there to your books? So, as I said, there, there was there was a sort of a, a particular type of reviewer who was expecting an angrier book, a kind of more polemical book. But I was, you know, very gratified to see the book being picked up by uh, a financial, an FT journalist, for example, who was interested in piecework and homeworking, kind of in the context of the present day 
precariat and the way that COVID has pushed us all back into the home as a site for wage labour. Actually, women, mothers in particular, have been doing wage labour inside the home for a really long time. Um, right through the Industrial Revolution, there were women who were doing uh, sewing, needlework, uh, light manufacturing industries used a lot of home workers. So actually, that was a story that 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 became incredibly timely and incredibly kind of resonant with uh, what what we were experiencing as a result of the, of the COVID lockdowns. So that was a, I mean, that was kind of ideal. You know, that was a dream for me for you know, a serious journalist to find real value from the historical knowledge and perspective that she gained from reading my book. So that you know, that was a kind of slam dunk kind of win. Um, and more broadly, I think a lot of people, a lot of readers, you know, have found it just really interesting to see just how you know the the kind of longevity of the working mother's experience i think we sometimes think of the working mother as a rather kind of contemporary figure or a figure maybe produced by second wave feminism who's really only been around since the 1970s and actually it's you know it's it's really interesting to see that there's a there's a longer story there uh and so i think i think a lot of readers have found that you know that that very illuminating and has sort of helped them to think you know, to, to to place their own experience in in longer historical trajectory. And what about you, Sudhir? What kind of response have you had from general readers and reviewers? It's been very um, gratifying. I mean, one of the one of the things that um, I was just discussing with my editor the other day is the breadth of um, of the responses. It's been very positively received in general, but it's been very gratifying that one of the best reviews was in The Spectator. But just the other day, the uh, online uh, 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 review of the communist Fourth International brought out a, a review of Black Spartacus and said very nice things about it too. So it's one of those subjects which can unify people pretty much across the, um, the ideological spectrum. Uh, I've also been very touched by letters, uh, emails that I've received from people, you know, from Haiti, from the United States, in places where not just um, African and uh, people of African descent, but people who come from ethnic minority backgrounds have read the book and appreciated the the effort that I put into, you know, as I was saying earlier, trying to get the book to speak through Toussaint's voice rather than giving a kind of uh, either academic or or sort of European take on on him. And, and that's something that people felt was uh, was positive and, and authentic. And and thirdly, um, I've been very gratified also by the reaction in France um, because people have picked up the book, talked about Toussaint, and I don't know whether this was there's a direct connection, but it's no coincidence when Macron very recently gave a speech um, commemorating the 200th anniversary of Napoleon. He mentioned Toussaint Louverture. And that's not something that perhaps would have happened until this book arrived and sort of said, you know, when we talk about this this moment in French history, we need to remember what happened in Saint-Domingue too. And how about you, Rebecca? What kind of response have you had to the book? Well, I my favourite response so far uh, actually was an email that came from a doctor, a, a GP in Canada. Of course, keeping in mind that you know, one of the things I'm I'm trying to understand in the book is how people tell their stories, like the stories of, of who they are and the story of what's going on in their lives. And I got this lovely email from a GP in Canada who said, thank you so much for writing this book. It's it's completely changed the way I see how my patients tell the stories of their illnesses. And, uh, and a bit like Helen said before, I was like, well, slam dunk, you know, that's just what I was dreaming of, that somebody who actually maybe isn't all that interested in, in Holocaust, or, you know, maybe isn't really even thinking about children, has used the book to see something really valuable in what they do. But beyond that, I think I've probably had, um, in terms of the, I've just received emails from people all over the world, and I read every single one of them, and I always write back if I can, and I I think they probably fit into sort of um, three categories, I suppose. So there are child survivors who are not in the book or the children or even grandchildren of child survivors who write to me to say, thank you so much. I, I understand now what my grandmother went through, you know, something similar. And that's always very rewarding because when I wrote the book, when I was literally sitting there in front of my laptop writing it, I always tried to think, 
you know, are the are the children whose stories are in the book, of course, they're not children now, they're in their 80s. Are these, will these people be able to pick it up and read it? I have to write in a way that they can. So to know that it's kind of gone out there and um and the the child the you know child survivors and their children and grandchildren can get something out of it is wonderful. Also got a lot of emails from people um who are not who have nothing to do with the Holocaust really, but are of the same generation who have written to say things like, you know, thank you so much just for the you the way you depict childhood in the 40s and 50s and being a kind of adolescent as well in, in the 50s was so helpful for, for me to understand what I went through, that kind of generation in which children were often told to uh, forget things or stop asking questions or just move on with your life if something difficult or traumatic had happened. That happened to me. Now I understand it. So that was wonderful. And then there's a third group I was very touched to um, receive emails from, which is uh, psychologists, a, cl a clinical psychologists or those a psychotherapists who work with children. And the reason I'm very touched is because in some ways, I'm, I'm, uh, there's a big strand of history of, of psychology, uh, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis in the book. And in some ways, the book is very critical because it's a very fraught relationship between child survivors and mental health professionals. So I've been so touched to receive emails from mental health professionals saying, thank you, this has helped me in my clinical work with children. I mean, wow, that's, that is what I dreamed of for the book, but I still am kind of surprised to see that, um, that it went out there in the world and it, it did these things. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you hitch your wagon too closely to some contemporary agenda or some contemporary issue that's sort of very of great topical interest in the moment, you may find that actually your book doesn't stand the test of time because the conversation moves on. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And although your books all cover quite different topics, it feels to me that all of these three subjects have become ever more pertinent since you've written the books. I mean, obviously, Black Lives Matter, where we're talking about Toussaint Louverture. There's been the rise in anti-Semitism when we're talking about the Holocaust. And of course, COVID has really affected how women and work have developed. So, I mean, do you all see that your books are even more timely since their publication, if anything? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I initially was, you know, very disappointed when it became clear that my book was going to be published in the midst of the first lockdown. So it was published just a few weeks after we'd gone into to lockdown in the UK uh, in last year in 2020. Um, but then, it, you know, it became clear that actually there were major themes in the book that were sort of set in sharp relief by the you know, overnight withdrawal of institutionalised childcare through the closure of schools, through the closure of nurseries, childminders couldn't work. Uh, and uh, so many parents were now just expected to carry on with their jobs with children underfoot, uh, and having to supervise homeschooling. And in a way, it kind of amplified or sort of magnified the sexual divisions in the home and the workplace, which we knew about already. You know, we knew that that women 
uh, aren't paid equally. We knew that women are more likely to step back from careers to go part time to embrace, you know, flexible, quote unquote, flexible working patterns uh, in order to to reconcile, you know, work with family life. And we know that that all of those things are sort of wrapped up with, you know, economic inequalities and gender ideologies that are very kind of deeply entrenched. So we kind of knew all of that. But but the COVID crisis just sort of illuminated it. It, it, You know, it was just like sort of switching on these kind of floodlights. Uh, So, you know, that that actually did give me, I think it did um, contribute to, you know, some of the the broader interest in in the book um, and some of the the, the sort of publicity and, and the fact that it did get quite widely reviewed and as i say or, or as i said before you know that that theme of homeworking suddenly became really pertinent and all of the ways in which you know actually homeworking historically has been a kind of second best option for mothers it's been embraced in the absence of adequate childcare provision in the absence of flexible attitudes from employers uh, and it's often been associated with social isolation sometimes with dangerous working conditions you know if you're and, and suddenly, you know, all of these issues became very, very pertinent. So I, I sort of feel like I ought to kind of write a, a, a sort of new final chapter of the book, uh, on uh, which covers the, the COVID crisis. And what about you, Sotir? Do you see that your book, and we have already covered this a little bit in this discussion, but do you see that your book has become ever more relevant since it was published? Yes, absolutely. And I think in in perhaps three three areas. One is obviously the history of slavery, which a lot of scholars have been working on. And one of the things that uh, has just become so much more obvious is the history of resistance to slavery, to enslavement. And, and now this is something that thanks to the very painstaking archival work that um, scholars across the Atlantic are doing, we're becoming more and more aware of this, of this historical fact. But then there's also the question that the contemporary issues, and there are two of them. One is obviously racial equality, the battle for racial equality and racial dignity with the events um, in America and and in Britain. And so the book uh, certainly, my book certainly speaks to that. But alongside that also how we talk about colonialism and empire. And and this has now become a much broader, not always a very even-tempered conversation. But I think uh, one of the things that I hope my book brings is the importance of actually knowing the facts. You know, people can have all kinds of views and, and, you know, all views are legitimate, um, you know, within reason when, when one is talking about historical events. But what, what one can't dismiss are, are the facts. And one of the things, for example, I show in my book, which a lot of people don't know, even, even up to this day, is that the British were very involved in Saint-Domingue and actually fought a five-year war there between 1793 and 1798 in order to try and restore slavery. And that's a story which is really important because it's not one that is generally told or recognised. So I think in all of these different ways, the book has hopefully helped to, to feed into these wider strands uh, in what is now um, quite a good, healthy um, collective conversation we're having. And Rebecca, how about you? Do you feel that your book has become ever more topical with the rising anti-Semitism? It's interesting you say that because... I do think the book is topical in a lot of ways. And yeah, I'm not actually sure I would pin it to the rise in, in anti-Semitism. So I started the book in 2014. So here we are now in, in 2021. And in that time, I actually, I mean, there's been many very topical issues that I've thought to myself, wow, this, this book has a lot to say about this. And these issues have a lot to say about the book. But I, I would um, pin them more closely to issues um about refugee children. I say that only, of course, we have a current moment of a, you know, obviously anti-Semitism is 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 very much in a public conversation, but in my own mind, anti-Semitism never goes away and seems to rear its really ugly head every couple of years. And so in that sense, that one seems less pertinent to me in some ways. But during the time that I wrote the book, for example, we had the issue of, of separated families in the United States uh, when Trump was president. And I had people constantly asking me, what's going to happen to these children? You know, what These children have been taken away from their parents. And then often, in some cases, the parents could not be found for the children to be returned. And I thought, well, 
I, I don't know, obviously, what will happen to these particular children. But if I look at the children in my book, I could tell you a lot about what happened to them in a very similar situation. And, and it's not a very happy story. So that actually felt very, very relevant and topical to me. And then we just had the broader issue of the fact that, you know, the book looks at this moment in, in, in 1945 when you've got these survivor children on the move. They're on the move. They're kind of leaving the places they were in hiding or they're leaving internment in concentration camps or other sorts of camps. They're on the move across Europe and then out of Europe. And yet, in the period I wrote the book, we had many, many more refugee children on the move in this world and in Europe than we did in 1945, 46, 47. And I thought about the reception that... Um, for example, uh, quite a number of the, the children in the book, of course, they're not children anymore, came to Britain after the war. And although the government was not uh, very enthusiastic about them coming at first, they had in general very warm reception. And I compare that to the reception that many refugee children encounter now. And I think, how have things gone so wrong? So that's where I see I see the relevance, and um, you know, in terms of thinking about the long term implications of what happens when we separate children from their families. Yes, the book has a lot to say about that. Do you all think that it's important that history does speak to present day concerns, and maybe not necessarily offer lessons, but certainly illuminate the present in some way? Well, uh, I mean, I'm a modern historian. I'm I'm a contemporary historian in many ways. So all of the well, the, the, this book and my previous book all sort of more or less came up to the present day. Uh, it might be very different for a medievalist or an early modernist. Uh, so in that sense, I am always thinking about how does the story arrive at the present? And that's sort of in, in inherently kind of part of what I'm trying to analyse or, or explain. But I think that that's rather different from being presentist in one's assumptions when one sort of begins a historical project or conceptualises a book. And I think that does need to be avoided. And I think rather for the for the point that Sudhir said about, you, you know, actually, if you if you hitch your wagon too closely to some contemporary agenda or some contemporary issue that's sort of very of great topical interest in the moment, you may find that actually your book doesn't stand the test of time because the conversation moves on. So it's it's really important, I think, to have something, I think, again, it comes back to this point about having something to say, having, you know, really compelling historical problem that you want to analyse, that you want to get to the bottom of, that you want to explain. Uh, and inevitably, or almost inevitably, that will connect with something you know with with problems and challenges in the contemporary because you know these are human societies uh, <laughs> that we're that we're dealing with you know where history belongs to the humanities we're interested in you know to, not to sound too preco you know precious the human condition so uh, you know and i think that's what a good good history really does it illuminates experiences problems dilemmas challenges that human societies have faced in the past and almost certainly face in in the present and there will almost you know there will always be some kind of connection there and what do you think Sudhir? um i think we are we are fundamentally constituted um by history and um and i think um one of the big dangers particularly in my discipline of political science is that people are too obsessed with the present and they just think we live in unique times and we live in exceptional times and there's nothing to be learned from the past um and that is just a silly view um and uh and i think um you know um uh the past shapes us and and this is one of the things i found out um when I was thinking and reading about slavery and 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 talking to people, um, a dear friend of mine from the United States, for example, told me that he had um, uh, a, an ancestor um, who took part in the Nat Turner Rebellion um, uh, in in Virginia um, uh, 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 a few years after the. Uh, uh, the revolution in Saint Domingue, and so people are carrying these stories in their families and in their in their in their own traditions. Um, and and to him, this was obviously a source of great pride. It's not something that he had talked about very much or very often, but 
you know, it, it, it was an important uh, in the context of the conversation we were having at the time. And so I think the, these long, these long histories really matter and, and, and trying to find out about them. Um, is important. Um, the other thing I would say, and, and this is going back to, to Rebecca's work, reading her made me realize that one of the things I would never be able to find out is uh, through direct, uh, or even certainly not through oral history, is getting a sense of what the trauma is of uh, being a very young child separated from, from your parents. But of course, that's what happened to enslaved people all the time. And reading her, just gave me a little window into what, um, how horrifying that must have been for generations of Africans brought um, brought across the Atlantic, uh, and and she was able to sort of help me um, appreciate that not just intellectually but also emotionally uh, through talking about uh, the experiences of a completely different group of people. But I guess the point is that there is a certain universality there, a universality. Of suffering, let's call it that. Um, and so I was very grateful uh, to her for, for helping me um, see that. And do you have anything to add on this question, Rebecca? I just want to thank Sudhir for saying that. But this came up in another conversation we had, and then I had to go away and think about that an awful lot, actually, um, about that issue of of children whose families are ripped apart by slavery and how, you know, what are the 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 long kind of the generational implications for that, which are not, I have issues with this sort of idea of intergenerational trauma, because I think you know, trauma is kind of the term can be pathologizing. It's more complex than that. And as I've uh, often talked about in other forms, you know, my mother is a child survivor of the Holocaust. And of course I, you know, I grew up in, in a household where I was aware of that. And I wouldn't say that all the, uh, lasting legacies are negative. Th that can, I think, is sometimes shocking to hear. Many are positive, and many I would not trade in, and many make me who I am. Uh, but that's not what you asked about. You asked about the kind of tyranny of the present. And I, I think, you know, we're all humans too, aren't we? We are historical agents in our moment. And so we are also shaped by that moment. So, of course, when we write history, we address things that are, are relevant, you know, to, to this particular moment. And thinking about what Helen said before about, you know, this being a humanities topic, one of the most lovely pieces of praise I had on the work is someone who told me, you write with such humanity. And I thought, well, Thank goodness for that. That's that's what I dreamed of to write with humanity, which in another way is 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 simply to tell a human story that maybe can be understood and relevant at any moment. That that is that is the dream. But I was also thinking about what Sidir said about um, well getting lost in the past. I think that's why you never want to to pin your writing too closely to a present issue that's going to fade away because you also want to offer your readers that, okay, I know it sounds funny in a book about child survivors, but the joy of getting lost in the past. I can't tell you how many times in, not in writing the book, but in researching the book, in sitting in an archive surrounded by these documents, let's say from 1948, that I, okay, I was not alive in 1948, but I became so lost in that moment that if somebody sort of said, hey, Rebecca, and I'd look up and think, where am I? And that is a joy maybe only historians know. And, and maybe, I don't know, only historians truly love that dusty smell of the ancient documents. But, but wow, to get lost in the past, it's such a pleasure. So I would hope in our writing, we can also let our readers get lost in the past. Mm. And I think that that actually come nicely kind of circles back to your very first question about what makes for really good um, history writing for, for a kind of wider audience. Uh, because it, it's not just about explanation and analysis, and it's also about transporting your readers into another world and immersing you know, creating a sense of, of immersion in another world in which things are different, people look different, they behave differently, they speak differently. Um, but there is also that common bond of humanity. Um, and I think probably writing popular history or history for a broader audience enables you to 
to embrace that and to do that more effectively than you could if you're constantly having to think about, you know, name checking the, the scholarship and, and, and explaining your, your methods and your sources. So I think that's, a, you know, another kind of wonderful aspect of, of, of the Wolfson History Prize, that it recognises that kind of writing as well. Okay, well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I think we are kind of running out of time, but is there anything else any of you wanted to bring up that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? There's just what I mean, one thing that I think is totally fascinating, and this is really kind of, I suppose, Rebecca's area, is kind of like the ethics, telling people's stories. And I don't know whether that's something that is of is is of interest. I mean, I find it very interesting, particularly, you know, you're writing very kind of intimate accounts of real people's lives, which I did a little bit of in in my book. So though one of one amazing source that I found were some uh, a huge um, box of questionnaire replies. Uh, which some graduate wives in the 1960s had sent in to a sociologist called Viola Klein. And these are just sitting in her archive at the University of Reading. And I don't think any historian, no historians had, had found them or used them before. And these are sort of wonderfully rich, written, personal testimonies uh, talking about, you know, their feelings about paid work, about going back to work, about motherhood. Uh, and uh, But I had to have a conversation with the archive about, making use of these testimonies because Viola Klein didn't ask anyone's permission. She didn't ask these women's permission about keeping this material, preserving this material, making it available to future researchers. I mean, today, research ethics committees at universities would never let you do that. You know, you'd have to be very, very clear about how the data is being used and how it's being stored and so on. Um, so I had all these these amazing testimonies, but I, you know, I had to be very careful about anonymizing, about removing anything that could identify these women. Uh, and I mean, I was very grateful that I was able to use the material. But you know, I realized I was reading the testimonies of women who never intended <laughs> me to read them. Uh, do you have anything to add to that, Rebecca or Sudhir? I have loads, but we don't have time for loads. I have some. <laughs> And uh, it is that I'm really glad Helen raised that issue. You can see that it's obviously particularly pertinent to my work because I work on oral history. So I inherently work with people who are still alive and I work on traumatic and upsetting events and I work on their impact in, in human's life. So ethics come very strongly. Ethics comes very, very much into the story. And in fact, I found some of the ethical challenges that I had to deal with in survivors so difficult that I ultimately decided they needed their own book. And so that's actually what my next book is about, is about some of the ethical problems that I couldn't solve. And I still don't know how to solve. And I was kind of ringing, wrecking my brains about this. I had a lovely conversation with a colleague of mine here at Swansea, uh, David Turner, um, who's a historian of disability. And he said, well, if you encounter a problem you can't solve, solve it by writing about it, incorporate it into the story. I thought that was brilliant advice and actually such good advice that um, the next book, the book I'm working on now, this it is a story about the ethics of using, I mean, who owns children's stories and how do we approach the ethical problem of working with children's stories when we don't have their consent? And I suppose for you, Sudhir, the people involved in the story are, are long dead, but they have descendants uh, other people may see role models in them. Do you feel any responsibility in that regard? Yes, I do. And um, and I think partly because for a long time these voices were suppressed because the, for a long time this, this story that I'm trying to tell was told in a particular kind of way in which you know the main actors, agents, were in a sense erased. You know, This was a story that was told from a kind of white European point of view. So I feel partly a moral responsibility to to help restore it back to their proper place, um, those voices that were actually the dominant voices at the time. One other general comment I would make, and, and it's come even come to me even more forcefully listening to, to Helen and Rebecca, is one of the things um, I still don't um, understand very well from working on slavery is how societies that can reach a very high degree of civilization can also at the same time tolerate what we would now regard as barbaric, forms of barbarity. And of course, the same is true with the Holocaust, and the same is true of um, 
you know, the view that men and women are not equal. I mean, for a long time, um, people in in, in, in in positions of power and authority and, and, and very well-educated people hold held views, you know, on slavery, on whether Jews are human beings, whether women are equal to men, which we would now regard as uh, as, as terrible and horrifying. And um, I guess I still don't really quite understand that. Uh, I mean, fortunately, this isn't what I chose to write about, right? My book is about uh, the people on the other side. But um, I'm, still, I'm still puzzled by this. That was Helen McCarthy, Sudhir Hazari Singh and Rebecca Clifford. The Wolfson History Prize winner will be announced this Wednesday, 9th of June. You can find more details at wolfsonhistoryprize.org.uk. And as I mentioned earlier, more in-depth podcast interviews with all three historians are available in our podcast archive or at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for the latest episode in our series on Britain's Greatest Prime Ministers. Thank you.